0: My name is Caleb Mason and welcome to The Learner's Corner Podcast. I'm so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in The Learner's Corner and today I'm honored to be joined by Brandon Flannery to talk with him about his brand new book called Stumbling: A Sassy Memoir About Coming Out of Evangelicalism. And Today, if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations, to have conversations to where we disagree respectfully without demonizing or de- uh, dehumanizing the people that we happen to, dis- uh, to disagree with. And today we're talking uh, with Brandon about his uh, experience of being a gay man and uh being a former pastor, a former min, uh, missionary as well, and just his experience with that. And I I always love having conversations uh, just like this one or very similar to this one because it's just different than my own experience. And anytime that we talk with somebody who has a different experience than we do, it's the opportunity to grow. It's the opportunity to learn. It's the opportunity... Um, to understand, to hear from, to to empathize and hear somebody with a different perspective than you, which can which can grow us, which can stretch us, and and even sometimes it can it can reinforce what we believe because we've gone down uh, and asked asked difficult questions, or it, we could change our mind in it too. And that's what we want to do here on the podcast: is engage in those types. of of conversations because it's difficult to have those types of conversations. It's difficult to, to find places to where you could talk about these things and disagree respectfully or just have conversations that are just, that are just hard. And so we're going to talk a lot about that today in the podcast, but if you've been on this journey of life learning for a long time, please check out, um, my Substack, to where I just give uh, recommendations from time to time of some of the different things that I'm currently learning from what I'm enjoying. And it could be uh, anything from the serious to the, to the non serious as well in in the the fun things also. And so let me, let me tell you uh, a little bit about Brandon, but actually before, before I tell you about Brandon, we get into this conversation is that depending on uh, where you're coming from in this experience, it, it could just make you uncomfortable. And I just want to remind you that, that that is okay. It's okay to hear from people who have different experiences than you. Uh, we're going to have uh, just some swearing. And listen, again, if, if something is rising up, with you, rising up uh, in you because of this, I would just ask you to look at that. Why does that make you uncomfortable? Why does that bother you? Asking those types of questions, going down those, is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to, to follow those, it's not a bad, bad thing to examine those things whenever they happen, whenever the emotion rises in us. And what, what I appreciate about Brandon, you can, you can even hear him, um, reference it several times as he does that. He does that in many of these conversations as well. So let me, let me tell you about Brandon and then we can jump in. So Brandon Flannery is an ex-pastor, ex-missionary, ex-evangelical who writes about the tenuous intersection of faith and sexuality. He's conducted research on why people are leaving Christianity and is published with The Scribe, Baptist News Global, the University of Colorado, and the Colorado Springs Indy. In addition to writing, he co-founded the LGBTQ plus Christian dating app, Believer, and lives in Atlanta. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, Brandon, it is so good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today.
1: Thank you so much, Caleb. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah. And you know, uh, one of the places to where I love um, beginning conversations, especially with people who have written books, is I love hearing uh, the story behind the work mm-hmm. of art. Yeah. And so... Um, I would love and maybe, you know, I was gonna say you, you get into a lot of your story in the book. And so maybe maybe it's just good to start with like a uh like a quick synopsis of the book and what you're trying yeah. to do and then what made you uh, want to
1: write it. Perfect. Yeah. So um my book, it's called Stumbling, a sassy memoir about coming out of evangelicalism. So um while it deals with a couple of different things, the overarching theme is me wrestling out what I believe. I grew up in um very charismatic evangelical spaces grew up at a mega church um worked at uh team mania ministries that did acquire the fire worked at ywam uh, was a pastor for three years so i'm um, very much so deeply involved in evangelicalism and was wholesale um connected to it and um i uh after leaving uh my missions work with ywam i was um hitchhiking and started to ask some pretty serious questions um as a result of my exposure to different peoples and uh, lack of answers to prayers. Um, and I on that shit on that trip, I started to really question things and it, that's where the book starts by the end of it. Um, some big thing where I end up and I kind of like sharing that, especially where uh, to kind of give people a forecasting of do you want to jump into it? is mm-hmm. I, I don't identify as evangelical anymore. I do believe in um, a God beyond me um but when it comes to these are the hard and fast answers i no longer hold on to that and i've noticed inside of myself as a result of bringing forward these questions um it's allowed me to be more open to people it's allowed me to be more curious um and rather than guarded and isolated and so um and a huge part of that as well um that's a theme that kind of was like the catalyst for me finally really analyzing my faith was coming in terms with my sexuality as a gay man Mm -hmm. um and my experience being raised in evangelical christianity as a gay man um and not just that though so and the re to answer your question of why i wrote it um what i i used to resent my sexuality a lot growing up as a kid because um i'm white I'm cis. I grew up in Colorado Springs, so very evangelical. And so I fit the model and my personality fits the model well for success in the evangelical space. Um, And I, had a lot of payoff for it in the sense of a lot of acceptance, a lot of, I mean, I was a pastor at the age of 19. Um, There's a lot a lot of opportunities are happening just because of who I am as a human being. The one problem that I could not shake was my sexuality. For a long time I resented it. And now I actually am very grateful and bless that part of me because it forced me to reconcile some things that I don't know if I would have if I were a straight person. Um, and so I started writing it because my friends, uh, like all of which are straight, really started deconstructing and processing their faith um, in 2020 as a result of Trump and Black Lives Matter and um, the Evangelical Church's reaction to the COVID um Covid nineteen, and a lot of them started to ask questions for the first time in their lives um, about their faith and how what the consequences of what they believe are. Um, especially even people who are in places of leadership at these churches. And so I'd have the same conversation over and over again because. Um, We had lost contact as a result of me coming out and there was distance that occurred with a lot of these relationships and they kind of all came out of the woodwork in 2020 asking me the same questions of where are you now, what do you believe, what do you think about this because I got kind of a head start as a result of my sexuality that a lot of my friends didn't as a result of um, these external factors forcing them to run really kind of take inventory. So that was my main reason for writing. It was, I was realizing, Oh, I keep having the exact same conversation over and over and over again. I really want to sit down and process my journey. Uh, what, what key moments in that journey and where I've arrived now. Um, I'm an external processor. And so writing has always been a part of that space for me to make sense of what's going on in my head and heart. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I went to Korea and in, I had a quarantine for two weeks. And I'm like, well, if I have to do this, but I think now's the best time to do it. So that's where I started. It was, uh, in the wake of, you know, co in, in the midst of COVID, uh, mm-hmm. June of 2021. So it was when I started writing this book and here we are. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. There's yeah. there's
0: so much there uh, that I want to follow up on. <laughs> I think the first thing I want to ask you about is your missions experience, mm-hmm. and you know you mentioned going to Korea. There's several other places that you mentioned traveling into the book, and I like to I I just I love asking people who have ex, who have just, just different experiences that probably most people don't have, and in this mm-hmm. case, it's for missions. And yeah. I'd love to know like what what are some of the things about you know missions about the world that through your traveling through your through doing ministry that you discovered hmm. that probably the the average person doesn't realize or doesn't even think about
1: hmm yeah i think that um some things that i was bumping into so um i think that uh in the united states i think while um uh it's i think in the united, in the united states it it comes from a very Um, Christian framework. Um, Even Mm -hmm. if you aren't a Christian, like I have plenty of friends that are not, um, we still bump into it. So for example, like Christmas, um, their wedding vows, um, what we do with our families, um, family structures. And so while um, Christianity isn't uh, the religion of a lot of people, our culture is very much so um, oriented to that. And being in even Europe, which has a very rich Christian history, um, is very much so, uh, post Christianity in a lot of spaces. Um, and so I was working in Berlin and every single Tuesday, we'd have to have conversations on the streets. Um, we were all performers, so we'd have dancers, actors, musicians, and we would just like busk and street perform, gather a crowd and have conversations and, um, you know, I think that's something that something where I was first bumping into, even before I started questioning my faith was kind of one of the key strategies for uh, a lot of missions organizations is convince someone that they have a need kind of like following the mm-hmm. role of marketing. To be quite frank, I work in marketing mm-hmm. now um, where it's like show someone their need and then offer the solution to their need and so how missions typically will offer the need it's like we call it like the Romans road where you bring someone through these different parts of Romans and like okay well there's these ten Commandments have you sinned okay so you need you you've committed guilt and so now we need to resolve that guilt and we resolve that guilt through you so that's like the journey you bring someone through and even back then I had a really hard time with that because um we're starting with a conversation of me saying like well you're broken mm-hmm. and um, I think that was really hard for me. And I remember there was this conversation that I had, not a conversation, a training with a, a leader in YWAM where there's, uh, for those that did YWAM, there's this, they do weekly courses. And one of these courses is called Original Design. And the idea is that at, before anything happened to the world, what were you built for? If there's this verse that says you're created before the foundation of the world, that means that you were created perfectly. And then within the construct of um evangelical christianity would be like well then um sin entered the world and then it ruined that original design and so this idea of like engaging with people and touching their beauty and reminding them of their beauty i was like i really want to do that instead and so it was really cool where i i had felt really uncomfortable with the typical christian missionary um script and then we just have these conversations with people like i just want to ask God, how do they see them, mm-hmm. uh, while talking with them and share that with them. And so it was really interesting because like to this day, and this is one of the reasons why I still have some semblance of connection to the divine faith and divine is because I'd have these conversations and I'd be just like prayerfully taught, like, uh, being open while talking with them. It's also helpful when you have a translator and you can just like, you know, kind of sit there for a second and like have this quiet prayer to yourself and would receive some incredible, crazy things where I felt like God was telling me, this is what I think of this person and experiencing the divine's love and delight in each and every human still to this day has rocked me. Um, but that exposure to difference going back to your question of like what mm-hmm. you wouldn't uh like with a missions thing i think that i've talked to a lot of people who've done missions work uh and a lot of them have been in ym because such a big evangelical organization but you know you've got like more denomina- denominationally focused missions organizations i was always non-denominational and so ym was a good fit a lot of them have left christianity or have deconstructed christianity and i think the reason is we've bumped into a couple things. One is exposure to difference. I'm, you know, I spent two months in India. I spent nine months in Germany and then all over Europe talking with people who are different than me. And, um, you know, it's easy to tell someone in the United States, well, you need Jesus. Cause they've heard that name before they get the construct. It's a totally different thing to be sitting with a woman who got hit by a bus and now is sitting in this uh Mother Teresa home for the sick and dying um where just because she made one mistake now her life is completely altered she can't get access to the healthcare that she needs you know i'm praying for her believing like jesus said for a miracle and the miracle doesn't happen and now she's crying in my arms um when we're praying for things like oh, I pray for the surgery to go well, Oh, I pray for like God for you to get me a job and these other different things that could come turn out well. I think that it's easy for us to attribute those, um, modern United States problems to like prayer and the will of God. It is a totally different thing when you're bumping into a kid who is whipping himself with, um, barbed wire, um, begging for money and you wondering where is an all powerful God in the midst of this type of poverty and pain. Um, I think that's a big one. And then in relation to that, uh, coming into contact with white savior complex, I didn't understand that. And Mm -hmm. being, um, a privileged white, um, man that was able to just, save some money and then travel the world and feel like I had something to offer um, when I had so much more to learn from the people I was bumping into. Um, And honestly, truly oblivious, especially at the age of 19, uh, no, I was 22, 23. But a lot of these students, like 18, 19 years old, being told to now go tell these strangers you have the answer um, is a pretty privileged and I think naive thing to do. And these kids... Um, we all were like wrestling and struggling with, man, like, I don't know if I necessarily have the answers, but these leaders are telling me what these answers are, so I'll just regurgitate them. And then when you take a step back and realize the, and this is what happened to me post traveling um, and being a missionary, was kind of taking stock of the legacy of missions and the legacy of white savior complex and how, what the negative consequences have been in the world as a result of this mindset, the idea of, Um, we have a a Christian obligation to the world and what, what atrocities that's led us to both in the United States and also from European nations um, was a huge wake up call in a devastating way for me. Um, Mm -hmm. Those are like some of the big heavy hitters, but honestly exposure to the difference uh, bumping into my privilege. um, were probably the two biggest things that happened as a result of being a missionary. And I would say, if you're, if you've been raised in this and you've never had your faith challenged, it will absolutely be challenged when you're a missionary because you're no longer in this echo chamber in the United States. You're having people who have no concept, maybe who Jesus is. Um, and now you're having to educate them on that and you're going to quickly understand how little, you know, Mm. um, luckily I, I went through a lot of trainings and stuff where I didn't ever feel that way, but, um, so I knew how to do the quote unquote right answers. Um, but a lot of my uh, friends that were raised in that, um, quickly started to question their faith because they weren't, they didn't know what they believed and they came into contact with that as a result of being a missionary.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And would you say that like that contributed to your, your openness or just willing to hear and to listen to people?
1: Then I think so. I think probably the biggest thing in my belief with this is still true is I think pain is probably one of the best, um, openers mm-hmm. has the opportunity to be one of the best openers and so um i think at that point i was still not quite willing to listen to a different perspective because it was too scary there's even a sh- story that i shared towards the beginning of the book where a friend of mine she left christian and we went to the same bible school and she had a lot of great informed educated um thoughts and was challenging what i was thinking and i was pretty closed off and defensive to her um and I would say that it wasn't until I experienced pain of me coming to terms with my sexuality and, uh, experiencing loss of my community, experiencing loss of my family, experiencing, um, loss of a, of a moral and, um, I would even say a a moral framework and a societal framework in the sense of like what my life should look like, all those things, uh, fell apart or were burned and experiencing that pain, I think was the greatest opener for me. Um, and I I kind of believe, I do believe this intrinsically is that when when someone experiences pain, it can either harden us or open us. And um, I think for a while I was hardened um, because mm-hmm. of the pain, but then eventually opened up because I was realizing, oh, this is my pain as a gay person. What is a person of color experience in the United States, especially as you know, the BLM, Um, was coming to a head, I was more willing to listen as a result of my pain. Um, I was more willing to listen to trans folks as a result of my pain. And so um, I think actually pain was the greatest opener for me. Um, I also Mm -hmm. am a curious person, but I would say that my willingness to be wrong was me um, experiencing how even what I believed was causing myself harm, um, and so, uh, that's what ultimately opened me up. It's one of the reasons why I have this, uh, belief that, uh, human beings who are assigned female at birth, uh, are more empathetic than <laughs> the rest of us because they, a lot of them, not always, but you know, a good chunk of them experience, um, the exact same pain every month Mm -hmm. and it's forced them to like regardless of language or religious creed or even politics like this bodily experience is shared globally um and it's you know someone could be like uh, a, a another um human being could be like in an argument with someone and this human being that has a uterus like starts Having her uh, her menstrual cycle, and all of a sudden it's like, hey, let me help you with a tampon or something like that. Like, they, it, this this shared pain creates a level of empathy that I think opens us up. So it's one of, I, it's one of those like theological things that I like twist around and incubate in my head. Um, mm-hmm. I don't have a ton of data around it yet, but that, that is one that I personally experience, and I do project on the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess that's probably what we all do. Yeah. You know,
0: one of the things, and I know that this. I'd love to have you follow up on the, you know, sometimes pain can harden you or open, you know, make you more open and pain, pain in itself is just one of those things to where there aren't, uh, there aren't a lot of uh, hard and fast answers Mm -hmm. towards Mm -hmm. it, but I would just be curious, like looking back on your own life or even, even just what you've observed, just teasing out that difference between sometimes pain can harden you and sometimes Mm -hmm. pain can make you more open.
1: Yeah. I think ultimately is perspective. Um, yeah. And, and, and I think maybe, I think that's really it. Cause the data is the same, right? Like, um, someone can go through the exact same thing and one person on one side can be hardened and the other person on the other side can be opened. Um, and <clears throat> I really do think it's a matter of, of perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, one thing that, uh, hardened me was, um, uh, victim mentality uh, where I was like, there was a, whoa it was me. There was a, um, how could people do this to me? There was a, um, and, and I will say there'll be, uh, I'm actually going to compare these two and I want to do a caveat. Okay. Um, and then once there was this realization of like, oh, I'm not the only person that's experiences pain. Oh, I'm not the only person that's lost family. And all this stuff. once I was able to, um, there was a widening of my lens versus, uh, I think with hardening there's a narrowing of lens it, that's what opened me up. It was realizing that my pain is connected to something far bigger than myself. Um, that's what the perspective that allowed me to open up. I will say this with the hardening too. Um, I'm in a space now where I can be in conversation with people that disagree with me, where I can be in conversation that actually believe that, who I am as a human being is, is wrong. I don't succumb myself to that uh perspective all the time as a mm-hmm. result of, and that's where I the idea of hardening, I want to touch that is yep. where it comes to the boundaries and defenses. Our bodies yep. um are powerful um and very intuitive and so smart. And <clears throat> when pain happens, um, our bodies will go into fight, flight, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. It's, it is a natural response given to us um, through evolution, through God, whatever you want to attribute that to. But it is a part of who we are and is actually good. It's meant to defend us and keep us safe. I'm a firm believer that there's no such thing as a bad emotion. It's information. Mm-hmm. And anger is a powerful emotion that lets us know that we are being hurt, that we are at risk, that we are in danger. And so when we are hurt, it is a very valid and right response for our body to come online. And I think it's a very valid and right response to actually harden for a a bit to make sure that we're safe. Um, And then I think that when we are able to get space and we're able to understand that we are safe in ourselves, whether that be through therapy, whether that be through creating healthy boundaries, whether that be through physical space, I think that also allows us to open up because we're no longer in fight or flight and it allows us to make comprehensive sense, uh, uh, make sense of what has happened to us when our bodies are in fight or flight, why it is helpful in the moment, um, our cognitive processing, uh, goes, uh, is, uh, inhibited Um, we're not able to think things through because ultimately at the end of the day it's not important that we make sense of it the what's important is that we make ourselves safe Mm -hmm. and so I think that as once we're able to make ourselves safe um, and that's what I've experienced is making myself safe is I'm able to now open up as well where it's like okay I'm no longer at risk of being harmed I don't need to harden up and defend and be on my guard I can be open because I've created safety inside of myself so does that answer your question yeah Yep. Okay. You know, uh, you you
0: mentioned that uh, right now that you're at least sometimes you're able to get to the place to where you could have a conversation to where somebody just adamantly disagrees with you about your right. sexuality and everything. Um, yeah. And just reading through the book, you could just tell that, you, you know, that that wasn't always the case that sometimes it was, yeah. there's a little bit more of a struggle. Talk to me about like, what helped you get there? What helped you get to that point? Because whether it's, you know, with sexuality or whether it's something else. Um, but like that's just something that we need more of. Like we mm-hmm. need more of being able to get to this place or at least get into the place to where we can have healthy dialogue, even mm-hmm. if, even if we disagree very much. Yeah.
1: <clears throat> yeah. I mean, for starters, I will say that like, um, I, where I'm at, like, I can have that conversation, but I still even have boundaries yeah. Um, where I, if I don't feel like, Safe or something like that, then I won't step into those conversations. I think that that's something that we should think about. Is more people like, well, why can't we agree to disagree? Well, your disagreement actually believes that I shouldn't exist. Like that's a very hard belief Mm -hmm. for someone to come to the table with. Um, You know, as a as a trans folk, I would not have a conversation with a legislator that has act created legislation that is now causing me physical harm. And I don't think it's a trans person's job to, unfortunately, I feel like the oppressed are always forced to carry the burden of education. Um, and I, I do think it's unfair. Um, you know, I, I grew up in growing up in Colorado Springs. One of the final straws for me with leaving Colorado Springs, I now live in Atlanta was I knew that I needed to get some space because I was being reactive um, I'd be sitting at a um, brunch on a Sunday morning and my friend who had just stopped going to church and it was very scary for him. Um, f- stopped. He He's a gay man as well. He was leading worship there, but was continuing to bump into issues and want things th- see things change. He stuck around far longer than I have. Um, and he finally was just like, you know, I can't do anymore. Stopped. It was this very first Sunday not going to this church. Mm-hmm. And a, um, a, oh, a girl who was also... Um, invited to this brunch I shouldn't say girl a lady a woman she in my opinion my judgment of her is she was acting like a girl with this question <laughs> so i'm am, i'm am owning my own judgments right there yeah. um that's how i relate to her because of the comment that she made um she sits down across from him and the very first question out of her mouth is "So, what church do you go to and while i truly don't think that's an appropriate first question um because you were engaging with someone from your framework and you're isolating people um uh my reaction was also not great. Um, I slammed my plate down and I said, uh, Jesus fucking Christ. That's your first goddamn question to this homeschool lady who, um, works in ministry and her whole world is Christianity. And, Mm -hmm. um, she was the whole table went aghast and she was very, uh, she went pale. And it was one of those moments where I was realizing that, um, Christianity and evangelicalism and the, and, uh, was still dry, uh, driving the direction of my life. And what I mean by that is before questioning my faith in Christianity and specifically evangelical Christianity. Um, cause I think there's so much beauty to Christ. I think there's so much beauty to, um, the tradition of, of elements of Christianity, but specifically evangelical, um, I also think Christianity has a problematic history. That's another conversation. But um, uh, <clears throat> when I questioned started to leave that space, you know, while in that space, um, evangelicalism would say, turn right. And I'd be like, okay. And I would turn, my life would turn right. And evangelicalism would say, now turn left. And I would just say, okay. And I turn left. Um, I was recognizing in my body, in myself, that evangelicalism would say, turn right. And I'd say no, and I would turn left. And so Christianity was still driving my life. Um, And so I wanted to move beyond that. And so getting actual physical space from Colorado Springs, because it isn't a safe space for a queer person. um, The final blow was club Q and the shooting that happened there, Mm -hmm. who the kid was raised in a conservative, not evangelical, but a Mormon conservative household um, believed that he had a right, a moral authority to harm people there. And I was, um, I said, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to, I'm going to leave. Um, because I was noticing that I needed space to feel safe and then have an honest reaction, um, an authentic, um, reaction to my life instead of uh, evangelical saying, evangelicalism saying turn right and I turn right and then evangelicalism saying turn left and I say no and turn left I can evangelicalism can say turn right I'm like that's interesting and I can sit inside of myself and I can say hmm I think I I think I will turn right this time or hmm, no I think I'm going to go forward in this case um and I think that um that's I think part of how we can bring ourselves to these is we need to elect, create safety that's critical to have conversations is there has to be safety first and foremost. So if I believe that I can actually be safe and sit across the table, and actually I would say, instead of sit across, sit on the same side of the table, I think that's Mm -hmm. probably the best mentality that we can actually take is instead of saying, can we sit across from the table from each other? And I, my pushback would be like, not until we can actually sit on the same, sit on the same side Mm -hmm. of the table and talk about our disagreement. Mm -hmm. Um, talking about the problem in front of us, but when we are continuing to talk across the table and we view the other person as an enemy, as, um, uh, an adversary, we're going to continue to create lack of safety. But when I can say, Hey, can, are you willing to sit on this side of the table? And so we can see each other's perspectives. Um, I don't think that we're going to have meaningful conversations. I would also say that right now we're probably the most polarized as a nation that we've ever been in a very, very, very long time. I think fear mongering is part of that. And again, it connects to safety. If I am seeing news that paints a drag queen, as someone that is trying to groom my child, why in the world would I treat that person with decency and humanity? If I can, um, because I have fear that is coming online that I need to defend my kid. And the rhetoric is there. When I am at Pride here in Atlanta and I see a mil- multi-million dollar uh, trailer that has this gorgeous LED sign and it says, save the children. And that is the mindset. And we've had that mindset for a couple of decades now. And it turns in and out, turns in and out. And it's popping back up again. The same exact rhetoric was used against gay individuals, um, of all kinds and creeds back in the 80s and 90s um, and even before that back in the 70s but really took a head during the uh, HIV and AIDS epidemic where they were now dirty and this is their fault and they get that this is what they get was the mentality of a divine justice I've heard that even said before when it comes to queer people when we view people as a threat our defenses are going to come online and until we can see someone as ourselves until we can see Uh, put myself in someone's shoes until I can have empathy. I don't know if we can actually have conversations um, because we will, we will sit across the table and we will draw arms um, rather than uh, draw up um, conversations. So, Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. uh, Another thing that I want to go back to uh, that you mentioned towards the beginning Mm -hmm. is um, it's just this idea of success. And you talked Mm -hmm. about how, You know, you were positioned to have success and yet you realized that, okay, that's like, that's not what you want. Hmm. And so can you talk to me just about experiencing that and also Mm -hmm. figuring out like, well, what, what does look, what does success look Hmm. like for
1: you Hmm. and how did you get to that place? Um, I think there's a lot of grief at first because, um i saw that as success and now as a result of my queerness was not able to cross the finish line so to speak um it's like i was set up i did all the right things i did the right trainings it's like you know training for a marathon so to speak went to bible school wanting to make a difference creating an idea of what success looked like you know being in i didn't want to necessarily be in full-time ministry i wanted to be like an actor and wanted to be in the arts but then as a result of my upbringing, changed my perspective of like, no, like success and evangelicalism is giving your whole life to Jesus, which meant full-time ministry. That's what it met, looked like in my brain. And while there's some rhetoric against that, I do think that that is kind of the mindset that we subconsciously take on in evangelical Christianity. Like that's the on fire person. That's the person that's really going after what God wants. And I wanted to go after God, even if it meant giving up my dreams of like, doing performing arts and writing and acting and like all these different things. So I pivoted and changed my whole different idea of what a, of a finish line looked like, which was full-time ministry, which was, um, telling people about Jesus, which was, um, seeing the world change, bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth to quote the Bible. That was all my ideas of success, trusting God, whatever that may look like. Um, and, um, it felt like well shit I actually can't get access to the finish line because of my queerness Mm -hmm. and so I actually resented it because I still had the same my idea of what was success in my brain and couldn't access it as if and you know in my book I talk about this idea of a gay glass ceiling like there was a block that I couldn't get to the finish line um and so for a long time I did resent it um so it took a level of tearing that down and honestly being nomadic for a long time not even just in success but in a lot of other ideas of what is a spiritual practice look like what does faith look like for a long time i tried to exist in this gay christian space which exists and like it's a uh, it's a beautiful community that's gone through a lot of hardship because they get attacked from both sides <clears throat> um and um you know, found that space. I didn't know that space existed. I thought I had to pick between my queerness and my faith and then was able to reconcile the two, but then also now had question big things about my faith that I couldn't reconcile. Um, and so for me, there I think there will always be, I was even just thinking about this past week. I think there will always be a semblance of success for my life will look like not monetary. I wish it would, it'd be a whole lot easier. Um, but like making human impact making the world a better place still that mentality just recoded of bringing heaven to earth. Um, so it's so weird that even that's where there's still a level of orbit to Christianity and spirituality for me, um, where I can't become an atheist. Uh, I've like tried, um, and there's for me, there is even data to support that. But for me, there's also data to support the contrary. And so instead of having a hard and fast of evangelicals saying, evangelicalism saying, I have the prescription of what the right answers are, I think actually a lot of people who leave Christianity take that same exact mindset, and now it's within atheism where they'll be like, no, now I have a different right answers. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to do either. I, I actually started to oscillate that way and found myself quite angry and defensive and closed off. And now there's this some fear, but also beauty to, I don't know. And I think actually a lot of us don't know. And I think that, um, if we would own that, it would empower us to be a lot more curious. It would empower us to be a lot more empathetic. It'd be a lot more empower us to make more connections with people of, I think you have something to teach me, um, as someone that believes differently than me, because I don't have the answer. So maybe you have some, Mm -hmm. um, And none of us have a monopoly on, on truth is where I now live. And so that connects even with success where it's like, it's hard for me to map success still. And I think that I still project a framework of, I do want to make a difference in the world in a positive way. What does that look like now? If I don't believe that my, the best thing for me is to convert everyone to Christianity, what does making the world a better place look like? And I actually think part of that is these types of conversations. Um, I think it's, Um, I think actually authenticity and having people bravely share their stories, another part of it. So we can learn from each other. Cause I think you have truth to offer me. I think I have truth to offer you. Um, and we find beauty and goodness in the dance of all of our, uh, contradicting. I wouldn't say contradicting. I would say, um, harmonizing and at times, um, dissonant truths, uh, Kind of coming in in into play together. Um, I think that's where the ultimate song of truth can come into play, um, and that even touches with my success. So I'm I'm still navigating it. It's probably yeah. the short answer to your question, yeah. Caleb. <laughs> no, that, I mean I, I I feel like that's I mean
0: I feel like that is the thing for most of life. Like you feel like you even whenever you feel like you have an idea of success, things change. And then their life, life changes or life happens. And then the idea shifts again, or you're forced to reconcile whatever, whatever this new reality is mm. for you. Uh, uh, I want to touch on, um, actually, I wanted, before that, I wanted to ask, because I want to be respectful of your time. And yeah. if you have a hard stop, I'm fine. With We're good. That. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Okay, good cool. Um, good. That just helps me in my mind. of just <laughs> like, okay, you know, I don't have to pick and choose uh, some questions and stuff like that. Okay. I want to hit on a couple of things that you talk about in the book. And, um, in the first thing is I want to read, uh, this quote that you have, and I would love for you to just elaborate on it about, um, and you say being gay isn't easy. Mm -hmm. There are some days I wish I never came out, not because I want to hide the truth of who I am, but because most days I just don't feel like being gay. And I want to have you elaborate on that because that's just a dynamic that, unless that's your experience, you don't even think about that yep. at all. And so, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, I, it makes me think of a conversation that I had. Actually, I didn't include it in the book. Um, probably should have. <laughs> it was already too long, um, in my opinion. But uh, I, I, I guess it's not a fantasy novel, so there's that. But um, <laughs> we're gonna get to that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had this conversation with some childhood friends I reconnected with. Uh, as a a result of another kind of hitchhiking travel moment that I had. Um, And that, I thought it was quite clear, like, why would someone pick to be gay? Mm -hmm. Um, Because uh, I thought that was like so obvious because of the pain that people go through as a result of it. But then I would have conversations with straight people uh, who uh, benefit from a white evangelical um, worldview and, I'm realizing, oh shit, a lot of people actually think this. And so I brought that. I, I didn't it was one of the first moments where I realized that where I'm like, a lot of people believe this is a choice that I would pick this. it was with these childhood friends. And I mentioned I'm like, I go, Why well, would I would think they would take a masochist to pick this? Like you experience um social ridicule, you you're villainized, you lose family, um, you're grieving a future that you painted in your head. Um, If you are wanting kids of your own, that becomes incredibly complicated, if not impossible. Like, there's a lot of consequences as a result of being queer. Um, How I relate to it now, I think that people would point to that and then say, or like, you know, depression and anxiety increases with queer people. Um, And um, a lot of my uh, evangelical... um, I don't want to say adversaries could put some on the other side people would disagree with me would say isn't that evidence that this is wrong that this isn't the right choice and again they would go back to choice or lifestyle is the word that i fucking hate she is a very strong word because i think it's so dismissive of the experience um uh, they would point to that as evidence and then i would then relate to it kind of how i would relate to um ableism um What makes, and also um, cultural, Um, what makes the world difficult for an individual who is deaf is not their deafness intrinsically. If we were all deaf and shared the same language and built our world around the idea of ASL and taught in ASL, there would be literally nothing to overcome. The problem with being a deaf human being in the united states is that it is built for a hearing world the difficulty with being a queer person in the united states and other countries as well but um i'm going to focus in on my experience here is that the united states united states is built for a white middle class straight person and um it's something that i bumped into with every little thing um comes into contact with how what language people choose when they're relating to me. It comes into contact with how people perceive how I should raise a kid. It comes into contact with what a marriage ceremony should come and look like. It comes into contact with even roles where I've had straight people who think they're being allies ask, who's the woman in your relationship? Like Everything of our framework is oriented to the straight experience. And so looking at a deaf individual to kind of contrast while they're very different experiences. I don't want to, I don't want to, um, quote the two. I just want to kind of use that as a way to kind of see a different perspective. Um, the, a deaf person's experience is not difficult because their deafness should be something to necessarily be cured. A lot of deaf and advocates and individuals would say, do not be my deafness is something to be fixed or cured. It is just different. And what I offer to the world is actually quite beautiful. Um, Why I have difficulty being deaf in the United States is because I don't have access to jobs that will consider me. I don't have access to um, a language that we all share. There's multiple hindrances that are not a result directly to their um, ability, but it is as a result of how how society has been structured. And so, yes, there is grief and pain that a queer person experiences, not because of their intrinsic queerness. It is because of the fact that we live in a straight society that has a very hard time being open to difference, in my opinion. And I would say that the data supports that. I have a friend that literally had to uproot their whole entire life and start over because of the legislation that was passed in Tennessee has made it illegal for them to exist as a, human, as a transhuman being there. Um, and they cannot get the care that they need, and it is not a result of their transness that is a problem. It is the environment that they are in that is the problem. You wouldn't, you wouldn't take a freshwater fish, drop it into seawater, and see it struggle and die, and then say, "Well, it's the fish's fault." It's like, well, you picked it up and you put it into an environment that was harmful to it. And so, again, looking at that, there is a, a there is an environment right now where it's very difficult. In contrast, a friend of mine lives in Norway, he's gay. His coming out, quote unquote, to his coworkers, literally was a non-issue. There was no, in fact, like when it comes to pride and stuff like that, it's like, there's uh like a a celebration of that but like it's not this fighting for rights it's not this reactive energy it's just a here are these people that are different here's a different uh, here's an experience that is one of many experiences that are uh, in the in the rainbow that is being human um that there's all these different kinds and colors and ways to be human and we're just celebrating one of many um he's had no issues there in contrast uh, here, um, me simply, you know, the conversation of like, oh, I'm going, um, in, in, in my per- current place of employment, it's not a problem, but back in Color Springs, there are multiple places of oper- of employment that I've had that weren't ministry or weren't church where the simple question of what are you doing this weekend would be terrifying because while everyone else is talking about how they're going with their wife or their husband or with their kids to the soccer match, I have to choose: Do I disclose that I'm going to go on a date with my boyfriend, or do I can choose to hide? And that, of course, adds anxiety to someone's life. Um, does I answer your question? Yeah,
0: I mean, um, um, I, I was going to say in, in so many of these conversations, I'm not even looking for a specific answer. I'm just mm-hmm. trying. I'm again, I'm just trying to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, you meant you mentioning that makes me think of another thing that you talk about. In there, in regards to, um, I guess it's advice to churches. That's probably the best way of mm-hmm. saying it. Is, um, is you say the most important thing that you can do for the LGBTQ plus community is just be honest yep. with what your beliefs are yep. and what your practices are. Would you mind just elaborating on that and why? And it's it's and again, I love it. I love that you. I would love to just have you elaborate even more of like this is why it's the most important mm-hmm. thing
1: yeah, I will be projecting because it is coming from my experience, but yeah. like that is information. and it's affirmed with a lot of other queer people. A lot of churches, um, it's marketing. <laughs> if I were to be cynical, um, you don't want to say these people aren't welcome, that doesn't really go over well. Um, and uh, and 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 the gospel says, all are welcome. Um, you know, there's no longer male nor female, there's no longer Jew or Gentile. And so there is a rhetoric that can be found in the text of everyone should feel safe and welcome inside of the church. In theory, that's great and would love for that to be the case. That is not true. Um, and, what, and a lot of churches will use rhetoric around, well, everyone is welcome. Everyone is in need of a savior. And it's murky because then a queer person will come in and believing if they're not you know like they don't know the signs they will hear everyone's welcome they're like oh my gosh maybe me too and a lot of them because uh you know the stats are going down of who is uh, identifying as religious in the united states but predominantly most people had a christian upbringing in some way shape or form in the united states Mm -hmm. and that means that not all of them because there are expressions and denominations of Christianity that are affirming of queer people, but evangelical Christianity is, is still quite large in the United States. So there's a good chance that a queer person after coming out had a rough experience with their faith and their background and their upbringing, they come to terms with their sexuality, they deal with all that trauma. And then they see this you know, mega church down the street that's saying, all our doors are open to everyone. And they're holding their breath being like, wow, maybe I can, maybe there's a space for me finally. Maybe there's a space where I can have community and connection um, and can have a spiritual practice and connect to the divine with other people. And maybe, just maybe this is finally going to work. And they hold their breath, they get hopeful and they get in there and they start attending and they start um, giving. And then they want to volunteer for kids church and all of a sudden, then they're not allowed. All of a sudden, they ask for a pastor to marry them and their partner, and they say no. All of a sudden, they are asked to attend a therapy session where they're saying that they should be breaking up with their partner, and more and more harm is then caused as a result of them finally, again, they made themselves safe, like we were talking earlier, dared to hope, step back into a space, and then they're vulnerable because they took down their defenses, and they get jumped is how I would, the language I would use. Mm -hmm. Um, And it causes, again, that's where it's like, it makes queer people anxious because they doubt what people are saying. It makes them doubt if what, if someone's being honest, you have to second guess and you have to try to read between the lines. And of course that is going to make someone spiral and be anxious and depressed. Um, If they're always having to guess and wonder where they stand with someone, Um, the most loving thing that a church, and I say this and I wrote, I actually write like a step-by-step like article that goes more in depth with it. I do talk about this in the book and touch on it, but I felt like it was worthy of giving it more time and attention with Baptist news Global, You can look it up, What every pastor can do to help queer people, including pastors who are non-affirming, um, is be honest. And it's for that reason. And I give resources and articles and stuff like that. My steps are, um, you should do the research period. So if you are having an opinion that queer people are not loved by God and that they're a sin or an abomination whatever language you want to use, or they're a sinner, just like any of us, if you have not done the work to sit, to use your language, Caleb, to at least open yourself up and listen and read the other mm-hmm. side, I don't think that you've done. Um, you are not being intellectually integrous is my opinion. Yeah. Um, and I think you're doing your followers, a dis- your your congregants, a disservice, because your queer people exist everywhere, including in countries that are now making it criminal to be queer. Um, and they, they're everywhere, and so you're going to have queer people. Um, and if you're on, if you're putting it honestly on your website that you're not, you know, affirming, you're going to have kids that come up in your youth group that are eventually going to come out. It's going to happen. We exist everywhere. And so you need to have a plan. Sorry, go ahead.
0: I was going to say, do you mind if I add just a quick antidote and then you can keep going? I was going to say, part of the thing is, we would expect pastors to do that in every other area of Mm -hmm. stuff too, of Mm -hmm. do the research. Like if you're going to talk about a subject, if you're going to talk about finances, if you're going to talk about um, I mean, just just name name the biblical subject or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. Do the research, and so I, I just want to underscore that point of like, mm-hmm. then we need to do the research for this too, and not yeah. just sound off about
1: like, it. Like, you know, how many churches not only preach from the pulpit around this, but also have small groups devoted to oh God, the finance guru that's everywhere in. Uh, Dave know, Ramsey. Yes, like he's everywhere. He's prolific because people have labeled him an expert and they, they uh, quote him, how many, how many Christians, specifically leadership, have entertained an expert on queer ethics and morality? Um, And you don't necessarily have to agree, but there are plenty of people out there that have given their academic lives to this space. And they've even arrived at different conclusions. Why would you not do the proper research mm-hmm. because when a queer kid comes out in your youth group, you can at least say, Hey, here's the resources that I've read. Here's where I, the different op- options and opportunities. This is where I land on the issue. And this is what that looks like holistically as a church. Mm-hmm. Cause people will be like, well, you know, the pastor believes one thing, you know, I had a conversation with a, a mega church, um, three weeks ago, which was really cool. Like a pastor, she's not the head pastor, but she's one of, she's a, um, what's her t- typical i think it's like christian life pastor so like she like does mm-hmm. counseling sessions and other yeah. stuff so she was like how do we support our queer people and i j- i was just like she just goes well you know we want lots of different perspectives to exist i'm like okay great are all perspectives preached at the pulpit and given equal access if someone has a different perspective than you are there consequences for them being a member at your church Sure, we can disagree theologically and we can have a, she kept saying, well, we want to have conversations, like we can have a conversation. Practically, what is the experience of a queer person going to be here? It needs to be outlined. If you want to be able to hold space for differing theological relationships of queerness, that's great. Then pragmatically, it should look that way. I should be able to have an associate or head pastor that disagrees with me and they don't get fired. Or I can have a queer person. It's like, well, you know, I personally think this way, but this person thinks this way. So we have differing opinions in our leadership and that's why we allow queer people this access. Or it's like we have differing opinions within our, us straight people and us straight people can have access even though we have differing opinions, but a queer person cannot lead here or volunteer here. Or da, da, da. It should say that because as a queer person, it's called informed consent. I should know what I'm getting into. You wouldn't give someone a medication. And to be quite frank, churches um, market themselves as having a spiritual remedy. If there, was a pharmac- if there was a medicine that was on market that did not say what the potential consequences of you taking this drug are, they would have a lawsuit on their hands. You should say, Yes, we want everyone to come here and to experience spiritual healing. However, if you have a history of being queer, side effects may include ostracism, you know, like (laughs) to throw shade at it, but like it should like, and I shouldn't have to, I was very honest with the um, pastor there. I go, she just goes, you know, we don't necessarily disagree and you should know the sides. There's side A, there's side B, there's side X, there's side Y, like know these different sides and how you relate to it theologically. Again, you would know that if you've done the research, um, state where you are very clearly on your website. And I told that to the woman, I'm like, you can have conversations, but practically it should be on your website. It should say queer people cannot lead in certain levels of leadership, but we'd love to have you, uh, and you would get married. She would say that like, um, certain pastors would perform a ceremony for a queer person. I'm like, okay, that should be on the website. Mm-hmm. Um, like those types of things should be very clear so that as a queer person, I can decide, do I want to take this pill? Mm -hmm. that's my opinion. And that's what I think that every queer, what every church leader can do. Um, And, you know, I would also say that like your opinion on what theology it could look like, you can hold that and still be a decent human being. Yeah. Um, I think that some people will say, well, you know, this is an abomination. Now I'm going to pick at pride. I don't see Jesus doing that. When I look at scripture, I can't imagine that jesus would be standing outside of pride events with a picket yeah um in fact this pride just happened in atlanta two weeks ago and i just you know i haven't had opposition to my sexuality since moving here which has been so healing for me Mm -hmm. um but then at pride i'm marching to the park and i'm like oh holy shit i didn't even think about this and so then there were protesters i'm like i forgot about protesters and that they exist (laughs) And I'm marching down. And I start to like get anxious and depressed. And then I notice these big flowers and these big angel wings. And I start to hear like um, Whitney Houston playing. And I'm like, what is going on? And as I approached, I began to feel light and I began to feel hopeful because there were counter protester protesters mm. who intentionally you dressed up as angels and used wings to block the protesters so that the queer people didn't have to deal with it. And there are these people that are called the Paisy, uh, Pixies or Paisies, I forget what they're called. But they have these huge flowers that block these um, protesters and they blast like diva music. And these are straight people that are just deciding, I don't want your pride to be ruined. Know that you are loved and I'm going to show that you're loved and I'm going to go ahead and block. And I started to tear up, especially with the, the angels. And I'm like, I think, I think that's more like Jesus than the protester that's saying, um, repent or go to hell or you're an abomination. Um, I think that's more of Jesus. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, it makes me think of, um, the story that you tell about, um, about Hannah and your mm. experience with her. Would you mind uh, yeah. sharing that story?
1: Yeah. So I went to, uh, um, a Bible school that was very like, evangelical, very, I would say militaristic, like we'd wake up every day at 4.30 in the morning to like do corporate exercises. We did military like um, exercises, uh, like intense events. And our idea was that we are beating our bodies and making it our slaves for Christ. And we were gonna go off to be missionaries all throughout the world. And we were going to go into leadership roles all throughout the United States. so we went to this, this Bible school It was very intense and I loved, it. I gobbled it up. Like I said, uh, evangelicalism I thought was serving me. And I was all in and it was very intense. And so I, when I came out, a lot of these friendships I called um, faded out, like on, on music, instead of it being a hard mute or stopping the track, I just felt like the volume slowly decreased over the years. And I just didn't know where we stood, but I got invited to a wedding and I was very scared to go because um, I hadn't I was going to see people I haven't seen in two years since coming out. And again, that anxiety that queer people experience, it's like, how are people going to react to me? We haven't had a conversation about this. I typically stay with these people that might be like my um, adversaries. Cause typically we'd all just crash together in one house. Um, so we could get as much time together as possible. Cause we loved each other so much. I haven't heard from them in two years. And so very anxious. But I was like, I know I will feel like crap if I don't go to this wedding because I care about this person so much. So I decided to go. And I'm so glad I went because I had conversation after conversation of us disagreeing and experiencing the love of Jesus. To this day, we all have a Marco Polo still where we talk and we share. um, The woman named Hannah that you Alluded to Caleb. Um, Theologically, we don't land in the same place. uh, The different sides are side A is affirming, where you believe that LGBTQ people are loved and delighted by God, and their queerness is created by God, and they should have a same uh, a relationship and expression of their identity that is glorifying to God and how they authentically made them. Side B is God made them this way; it's beautiful, delights in them, but God would say, with how you were made, you should commit to a life of celibacy. But you are gay, you're beautiful being gay. Don't have shame around that, but you're called a celibacy. Mm-hmm. Side Y is like, you don't identify with your sin. You have same sex attraction and you're going to deal with it for the rest of your life. Just like uh, Paul had a thorn in his flesh that's side Y. Side X is you are not gay. You should not try to be gay and you should go to therapy to try to change this or pray to try to change this. You're, the ultimate goal is for you to be straight, just to give some vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Hannah, I described that to all... Them and eventually Hannah would say that she lands inside B where she's like, I think God made you this way. Um, and you, you, uh, and but I've seen God's hand on your life, and I true. And she's also a Calvinist, <laughs> or she would say, um, what's the language she uses? reformed um and she'd say like i see god's hand on your life i see that god's providence on your life like i'm not going to ignore that and i can't shake that and so i think that you were made gay i don't think you have any choice in this matter but um you know and i think that and you believe that uh, god made you this way and that you should act on it you know I think we're going to find out who's wrong on the, once we die, like you might be right. I might be right. We both might be wrong. We're probably mm-hmm. both wrong. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't scare my relationship to you. Cause at the end of the day, I believe that you're loved by God. I believe that his salvation is for you and your queerness does not get in the way of that. Um, and it was really interesting. Cause you know, I think that I started to ask pragmatic questions cause I think that there's certain people, they believe certain things, but then pragmatically it pans out. Differently, and so theologically, I was like, okay, I, that I feel safe there. But then she'd ask about my dating life, and I was hesitant at first because I'm like, should she? Why is she asking about my dating life? And so then I started sharing, and she got, she's like, oh my gosh, man, I'm just so excited for you, but I'm also conflicted because it's like, I'm excited for you to find someone, but then I'm also thinking, am I encouraging you to sin? Um, and I go, and I, and this is where I think that uh, anger is a healthy uh, thing to check in with. Cause I was noticing mm-hmm. that my body was coming online with butterfly. I'm like, Oh, maybe I'm not safe with Hannah as, as safe as I thought I was. So I just had a direct conversation so that we could create safety. And I was just like, Hey, if you believe this is a sin, I actually, we can talk about anything else. I don't want to talk about my dating life with you because I don't, I want to be happy with the people I'm talking about with my dating life. I don't want to brace and be nervous that you're going to be angry or not happy for me. Um, I want to talk about my dating life. People are going to be happy with me. And so if you can't do that, that's okay. I still want to be in a relationship with you. A boundary I'm going to have is that I'm not going to talk about my dating life with you. Like that's one area that I need to keep safe for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she was just like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. I want to talk about your dating life. So again, I think that your sexuality, why we disagree, I'm in just as much need of salvation as you are. I don't think you dating, uh, and, uh, with a man is going to inhibit your salvation. So I'm not going to react that way anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to be excited for you. Cause I do think that we are worthy of connection. I think that we're worthy of having, building a family and I want to get excited about that with you. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, we were able to navigate pragmatically what does this look like. To steal language from a friend of mine, um, Kevin Garcia, Bad Theology Kills is a book that they've written. And um, to make distill it even more, it's like bad theology can cause harm. I don't actually care too much about what someone believes anymore. I want to learn from you, and I want to see where there's uh, what I can learn from you. Uh, however, I do care once your theology expresses itself in a way that is causing harm to myself or to other people. That's mm-hmm. where I'm like, we can disagree. What we can't, where I or I won't uh, choose to agree to disagree is when your beliefs are actually causing my friend to flee their state, causing my friend to not able to get care, causing my friend to get um, friends of mine at a club shot at that's where I can't sit across a table from you or I can't sit next to a table from you and say, we can agree to disagree. I can't mm-hmm. because people's lives are at risk. Um, and I think that's where we're noticing with like, um, BLM is, um, to steal language from, uh, Trevor Noah, he was talking about how we were seeing people rioting and breaking things and we were, we were praising it in Hong Kong just literally months prior to BLM. We're like, wow, look at these Hong Kong individuals, flying the American flag, rioting and breaking stuff because they're saying we're not going to let communism keep us down and we're not, you know, and they were like, we, we celebrated it there. Um, as soon as it touched our stores, then we were like, well, you need to uh, protest differently. And Trevor Noah brought up the conversation of like, we in a, in a society have a social contract and we only obey this social contract because it creates safety. So I choose to not steal because I know that if we all don't steal, it allows businesses to open up. It allows economy to flourish. There's pros to this. But if I am continuing to not benefit after decades or hundreds of years as a black person in the United States from the social contract, why should I obey it? And so, again, the same thing when it comes to coming to a meaningful conversation. Why should I succumb myself to a conversation with someone that is actively perpetuating violence against me, whether it be politically or literally? Um, And that's where it is. I think it's impossible to sit at a table and have a meaningful conversation about our differences. Mm -hmm. And that would be the line for me.
0: Yeah. Well, I got two other things I want to ask you about before, uh, but before that I always love just giving people to talk about anything that we haven't covered in the Mm -hmm. conversation. There's so many things that we could talk about in the book or just anything top of mind. Is there Mm -hmm. anything uh, that you want to make sure that we cover or talk about?
1: I think I've been doing a good job of hitting the things I really care about. Like I think that the church and how they react to queer people is very important. Um, I think that uh, just like sharing a little bit of my journey. So people, again, like the idea of empathy, I think that's part of it yeah. is the reason I shared my story is I, I open up the book by saying, I'm not saying here are my 10 answers for life. My goal, and this is why I brought it up earlier, really, is just like, here's, I want to as candidly as possible, share my journey so that someone may learn from it. So they can yeah. learn from my mistakes. They can learn from my successes and they can be exposed to difference. Cause I think that's where we grow. So I actually think you've been doing a good job of hitting all those things, but, um, yeah. So thank you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, okay. I, I would regret it so much if I didn't, because this is such a big theme in the book is you talk about this idea of, uh, on your faith journey of keep coming back to this idea that God continues to believe in -hmm. you. And I Mm -hmm. would regret it if I didn't ask you just to, (laughs) to talk about that.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I definitely hit on the head at the end, but you're, you are correct that there's this kind of theme that bumps up here and out. I didn't see that theme until no. nine months ago. Mm-hmm. I had written this book two years ago and had edited it so many times and I had been marketing it and trying to find a publisher and yada, yada, yada. And I was at nauseum in the throes of this book. And it just didn't sit right with the ending, and I, sh- I, I, but I wanted to get other outside perspective because I knew I was too close to this. And I shared it with a couple of people who were very close to me. And a few of them are just like, yeah, it feels like it's missing something at the end. And I didn't prompt them. I said, how do you feel about this ending? That's all that I said. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got feedback. I was just like, yeah, it feels like it's not resolved. And I go, okay, I'm not crazy. And a moment happened uh, less than a year ago that I talk about towards the end of the book. And it's mm-hmm. where I had this Pretty dramatic uh, spiritual encounter where I pray to a dead friend, and I open that up in the book. It's not a spoiler. One of the catalysts yep. for this book is that my friend dies. Well, he ruined the book, and then it became something different. Um, and uh, I decided to pray to him, uh, and I didn't really get an answer from him. And then I was in this in the throes of like my relationship with God and what do I think about God and all this stuff and. Um, In this process with these men that were kind of doing this uh, psychological uh, like therapy process, um, this older man who's uh, was a pastor for 30 years, a great dear friend and mentor of mine, um, asks, "What would an all if there is an all powerful loving God out there, or just a loving God, or whatever? If there's a good God out there, what do you think they would say to you?" And I just always felt like it was a cop out. I'm just like, I don't want to put words in their mouth. They can fucking speak up. Why am I always putting words in their mouth? It's their turn. And Um, I was sitting with that though. And I was just like, fine, I'll do the exercise. And I just prayed to my dead friend, like a couple days prior asking for help and sitting there in the space, a memory comes back from that dead friend of him. Right. As I was coming out, um, I was very scared for myself again. Why would someone wish this upon me for years? I thought I was like, I can't shake this anymore, but I guess I'll just go to hell. And I know people that believe that they believe that because they can't shake their sexuality and they can't they they still believe the bible and that every word is perfect and inspired that there's no like um you know people relate to the text where it's like well no there is context here that's important i know people that they don't believe that and so they believe i can't shake the sexuality so i guess i'm just going to hell when i die cuz i just can't i can't do it i've tried to change myself and i, I again one of my mm-hmm. dear friends at bible school I felt like they were torturing themselves for years with this rhetoric. And they, I think they still believe that decades later. Um, and that I living in that space was horrendous for me for years of believing that I was going to to hell because I can't shake this. And um, I was coming out and really coming to terms with that terror. And I was walking with this best friend of mine and I said, are you scared for me? And he said, no, I'm not scared for you. And I'm like, really? Cause I'm scared for myself. Why aren't you scared for me? He's like, cause I believe in you. I've seen you and I've seen your, uh, I seen your connection to God. I've seen just like my friend, Hannah, like I've seen you connect with the, with God. It's so interesting. Other people's view of ourselves. I think it helps us reset because sometimes I can be too close to myself and to have outside perspective, I think to romanticize it, to get that idea of looking into the eyes of a lover or a, a good parent and you're seeing how they see you can help bolster you um, and help reframe maybe some depressive episodes you're having or some negative self-talk. And in that point, I was terrified. And to hear like, you know, he still is evangelical up till the day that he died. I think that he was ultimately hoping that I would come back to believing that I'll be straight or something like that. Um, But he did have this belief that god's will would be done and that um uh that i was capable to figure that out and it also points back to another theme this comes up uh, not same same theme but like mm-hmm. uh came up at a different point where a pastor told me it's like even if you're horribly wrong what type of god would do an internal punishment for a kid who's trying his hardest to understand coming up with these answers and chooses to make a choice for his emotional uh Health, um, what type of God would do that? Because even if you're wrong, don't you think that a God who's a loving parent who is good could say, Brandon, this is the wrong way? Couldn't you think that he could that a God out there could do that? And I was just like, it really helped me decide to take a leap of faith to understand that I might not have all the right answers to embrace and love all the pieces of me. And I have found in myself as a result of that so much health and wholeness and goodness. And that's probably the biggest thing that I think about with the words of Jesus is judge a tree by its fruit, Mm -hmm. fruit of my relationship to the Bible, to evangelicalism, to myself for a quarter of a century. The fruit of it was depression, anxiety, um, terror, and then to slowly, but surely over five years, love myself begin to question things um begin to hold space for other um perspectives not only produce healing and health for myself but also the people around me and i think that's probably really the biggest point of evidence if we're looking at it scientifically of what uh of the validity of this so mm-hmm. yeah does that answer your question
0: it, yeah yep thank you for thank you for sharing that the last thing that i want to ask is um on a much lighter note than the rest of the conversation <laughs> is um is fantasy and brandon sanderson and, and yeah. referencing in his work i i you know i already told you that that was one of the the biggest uh pleasant surprises of just going through the book and going like that's brandon sanderson i know exactly who you're talking about
1: yeah i mean so i went through this journey where um uh, again, I think that there's uh, when I was younger, I think we all kind of do this to an extent of rejecting pieces of us because um, they didn't get the approval that we wanted from our peers or from our parents mm-hmm. or from our teachers or love whatever it may be. And so yeah. we either shut off pieces of ourselves, change pieces of ourselves. One of the things that I loved as a kid was fantasy. Mm-hmm. But I was quickly learning that that was nerdy, dorky, not cool. And so I shoved that piece of me down. And so when I started to kind of begin to love and affirm my queerness, I started to analyze other places of myself where I was like, where have I orphaned myself? Where have I pushed myself into a corner and punished myself when I was just actually a kid, um, and there was nothing wrong with it. Um, and I was reminded of fantasy and I was just like, oh my gosh, I dropped that and I found so much joy in it. Yeah. And so I picked it back up and started just ravenously consuming fantasy. And I started back up with Brandon Sanderson, who I highly, highly, highly recommend. I learned through story. It's one of the reasons why I wanted my book to be story driven, because yeah. um, I learned so much more. And Brandon Sanderson has taught me so much um, through his, you know, 500 plus page to be like a lie. A, a novel is a lie. Like, it's not real. Yeah. And yet it speaks so much truth. Um, And uh, a theme that continually pops up. He has lots of beautiful themes. Mm -hmm. I'm currently reading um, Wheel of Time and he finishes the last three three books and I notice a significant difference in how he brings about existential themes in the last Mm -hmm. two books. And there's big themes, like I guess more uh, beliefs in Wheel of Time of like reincarnation and Taoism and Buddhism. Like there's a lot there, but like he brings in some powerful um, existential themes in the last three books um Brandon mm-hmm. Sanderson does and one that he brings up a ton is death and how we relate to death in Stormlight Archives um and it still is a a theme that haunts me in a beautiful way is that you know we all arrive at the same destination mm-hmm. so it can't be about destination it has to be about journey yeah um from breath to from first breath to last breath that's what matters if if the finish line to cover kind of do full circle there is the same so um it's something that still haunts me i still think about um love brandon sanderson uh my favorite series of him is the stormlight archives it starts with um the way of kings um Mm -hmm. highly recommend i would say as you've we were talking before we started recording Caleb, i think mistborn is a good entry point for him but yeah get to Stormlight at some point oh, because it I'm is the creme de la creme in my
0: opinion. Oh it's 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 gonna yeah it's gonna happen. Just gotta finish <laughs> first. Yeah. Cool. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and for the wonderful conversation. I know that people are going to want to pick up your book, Stumbling, and Keep Up With You. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, my website is brandonflannery.com. Flannery is spelled F-L-A-N-E-R-Y, just one N. Um, I think I had a drunk Irish relative that dropped off the O and the end <laughs> at some point. Um, but, uh, yeah, brandonflannery.com. You can also on social media, my handle across all platforms is flan brand, like an old person cereal. Um, but those are, and then you can find my book also on my website as well, brandonflannery.com. But in case you want to just like quickly jump to, uh, like Amazon or something that it's stumbling, a sassy memoir about coming out of evangelicalism. So yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Really appreciate it, Caleb.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, again, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for the great conversation and just thank you for doing the work and for sharing it with us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay,
0: so coming out of that conversation, man, there, there's just so many things that that are just coming to mind from that conversation. I, I just want to talk about a couple of them. One is that idea that Brandon talked about that, that pain can sometimes harden us or it can open us up. And the difference between the two he mentioned is perspective. And so just thinking through, okay, so what what do I have in my life or what do you have in your life that helps you gain better perspective? Who are the people that help you gain better perspective in your life? What are the practices that help you gain better perspective of, of sl- maybe it's slowing down, of taking a breath? Pe- certain people that you talk to and you ask for their advice um, on it. The other thing uh one other thing that it makes me mention of is or that that this conversation just reminds me of is this quote from my friend uh stuart hall we actually talked about it uh, he mentioned it in uh well i've, I've just seen him mention it several several other places but he talks about this idea that the weakest conviction you have is the one you've never tested and asking hard questions of faith asking hard questions of yourself I don't think is a bad thing, because at the end of the process, you will you will have strengthened your convictions through testing them, through exploring what the what the alternatives are, through exploring what that is. And like the thing is, is that that's coming sometime or another. Like exploring those questions, putting ourselves in those situations, exploring those curiosities, they're coming. And so. And I guess that's, that's part of the, one of the things that I just try to think through how to do, of how do you strengthen those convictions? How do you, how do you test your convictions? And, and along that, the other, the other thing that I want to mention is this quote that we, um, you know, we were talking about Brandon Sanderson towards the end and there's this quote that Brandon, that Brandon Flannery has from Brandon Sanderson that I want to read as well and it ties into that idea of convictions and i think just really sums up a lot of what what brandon was trying to do in this the purpose this is what brandon sanderson says the purpose of a storyteller is not to tell you how to think but to give you questions to think on and i hope that that conversation or that this conversation that we had did that for you that it gave you questions to think about maybe gave you a perspective that you hadn't necessarily thought of before and forced you to wrestle with, and I'm going to tell you that Brandon's book will do that too. Brandon, I, it, it's, yeah, I, I just highly recommend the book because it's going to force you and it's going to stretch you. And for for many of us who are probably listening, it's just a different experience than what we have, and it's going to face help us give questions that we need to think through, that maybe maybe we've had uh, a tendency to ignore from time to time. But anyway, I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say. Thank you uh, to Sam Massey for creating the music for this. Oh, I almost forgot. And again, if you're on this lifelong journey of learning, if, if you want to continue to encounter things that will force you to, to think and to grow and to just encounter different things that maybe you don't think about from time to time, please subscribe to my Substack to where I'm just giving you some of the things that are making me think. Whether it be fiction or nonfiction or a podcast or a movie or what, what, or just a quote, it could be that as well. Whatever it is, please subscribe to the po- – or to, you could subscribe to the podcast, but subscribe to the substack and you'll get an email whenever I send out those things as well. And so with that, I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thank you to Brandon for being on the podcast as well and for the wonderful uh, conversation as well. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.